primary care knowledge boost, GI symptoms in palliative care. Hello everyone, nice to be back with you all again. Today we are talking to Dr Liam Hosey and Dr Anna Murray again about some further palliative problems. Yeah, this was a great talk. Uh, we start with an approach to nausea and vomiting in palliative care, including a breakdown of the causes and what medication works well for each of the causes. Yep. And then we go on to talk about constipation with the same framework of looking at the cause and then why to choose certain types of medication. Yeah. And we'll be back at the end of the episode with our learning points. We hope you enjoy it. Um, would you both like to introduce yourself again for the listeners who might not have listened to the first episode? So, hi, I'm uh, Dr. Liam Hosey. I'm a GP in Wigan and the end of life lead GP for Wigan Borough CCG. And I'm Dr. Anna Murray. I'm the medical director at Wigan and Lee Hospice. Perfect. So just to frame the rest of the episode again, we're coming at all these questions from the point of view of palliative care um, and if we start again generally and just open up the conversation about um, nausea and constipation what would be your normal approach to a patient uh, who presents with nausea and vomiting in palliative care? It's a, it's a fairly similar approach to, to most symptoms in that my first question is always why is this happening because there's, there's a, a range of different reasons why people might experience nausea and vomiting some of it will be related to their diagnosis some of it might be related to medications that they've been given because of their diagnosis and some of it just might be unrelated to that diagnosis at all and the way that you're going to try and manage the nausea is going to depend on the cause of it because it's not a case of sort of one one size fits all when it comes to the medications that we use so there's a difference between nausea and retching and vomiting but patients don't always use the word that, that we would fit to the symptoms that they're describing. Is it a feeling of sickness? Are you trying to be sick but you can't be? Are you actually managing to be sick? And actually asking the patient why they think they feel sick can be helpful as well. If someone is um, actually vomiting, it's really important to find out if there is nausea related to the vomiting and I think we always assume that there is but you can get some patients who are sick but have very little nausea associated with it and you'd ask about things like um, heartburn so are there other symptoms associated with with the nausea and vomiting and you would also want to know the impact that it's having on someone's ability to eat and drink have they got any appetite? Are they eating and drinking? Are they managing to keep things down? Because again, this all links into what the potential causes are. Because as well as antiemetics, there may be other ways that you can try and address some of their symptoms if you've worked out why their symptoms are there. It may also be important to consider, you know, has there been anything recently that we have changed as doctors that have that so it might be that simply we have given the patient something else so they may have been prescribed a given medication for pain or another symptom and that has then created the, the, the nausea and or vomiting um, so perhaps in palliative situations some of our patients may be on steroids for example which can cause a lot of GI irritation and that may simply be remedied by using a, a anti-acid medication of some description rather than having to give anti-sickness medicine so if we can actually work out 
what's come first, uh, we may be able to, to solve the problem. And I guess that leads nicely into kind of where do we start with management? How do you work out what is the best management strategy to use in people who are presenting with nausea and vomiting? I think you can sort of divide symptoms into quite broad categories when it comes to nausea and vomiting. In broad terms, it can be a problem with the bowel and how the bowel's functioning. And the type of description you tend to get with that is that people are actually vomiting but they can frequently have very little nausea associated with that. Um, So they get episodes of nausea quickly followed by quite a large volume of vomit, and then the nausea settles completely. And it's essentially because their their stomach isn't emptying effectively, and that can be because the bowel's not functioning. It can be um, for reasons such as um, hepatomegaly. So if somebody's got large liver metastases, it can put pressure onto the gastric outlet and, and stop the, the stomach from emptying. So they essentially accumulate whatever goes into the stomach over a period and, and have a large volume vomit. So that's how I'd sort of describe bowel-related nausea and vomiting. You can get nausea and vomiting that's due to um, chemical imbalances. So um, knowing what someone's bloods are like is really important, particularly thinking of renal failure as a cause of nausea or hypercalcemia as a cause of nausea. The other things that come into the chemical group are drugs that cause nausea. And for for our patients, opioids, I suppose, would be the biggest um, culprit with that. And patients tend to describe um, sort of a continual feeling of nausea, but very little vomiting. Um, so when, when someone describes that picture, you start to think about chemical causes. The third group, I would say, is sort of in, intracranial causes. So anything that raises intracranial pressure. So again, patients with brain metastases, typically, as well as their nausea being worse in the morning, would have headaches in the morning and other symptoms that related to their nausea. And getting up and being up and about during the day actually helps to relieve some of those symptoms. The final individual group probably would be vestibular type problems. So dizziness associated with nausea, lightheadedness. Um, And again, it's predominantly nausea. But sometimes it can be multifactorial, so patients can have a GI problem and brain metastases, so might give you more of a mixed picture. And depending on what you think the cause is, you'd focus on which antiemetic is likely to work best for that cause. And you can tie yourself up in knots, understanding which receptors are involved, but for me, it's more important that you know the, the different categories and what you're probably going to try in those situations. So if I go back to sort of the four specific areas that I described, if you're looking at a GI cause of nausea, your main aim is to try and help them to empty their stomach. So if you move things down, they're not going to be sick anymore. So we look at the prokinetic antiemetics um, and the one we would normally use is metoclopramide. So metoclopramide works on dopamine receptors and there's lots of those in the bowel. So it works well on the bowel to help prevent the, the nausea and vomiting. The second group uh, we talked about was the chemical causes 
and haloperidol tends to work quite well for chemical causes of nausea and vomiting. It's also a um, dopamine antagonist, but it's not got prokinetic effects, so that's how it differs from metoclopramide. And it works on the chemoreceptor trigger zone in the brain, so that's the area of the brain that senses that there's a chemical imbalance of some description. By targeting that area, you, you stop the response of the brain, which is to, to make you feel sick, essentially. And that's its sort of warning sign that something's not quite right. And then the final two categories, um, which are the intracranial causes and the vestibular causes, you can use the same medication for both of those causes. So the first line choice would be cyclozine. So cyclozine is an antihistamine, antimuscarinic. So it works on both the vestibular system and the vomiting centre. So it, it's good for raised intracranial pressure where the vomiting centre is going to be activated and for those vestibular symptoms as well. So they're the sort of um, ones that target those very specific receptors. And remembering which the receptors are is less important than thinking, I know cyclozine's good for this type of, of symptoms. But some of our patients will have a combination of reasons why they're having nausea or vomiting. And I think most of us are quite familiar with levomepromazine because that tends to be the medication we recommend for nausea and vomiting, probably at end of life. But the reason for that is, is it works on a combination of those receptors, but it's not as potent on the individual receptors as the three medications that I've already described. So it's more of a general coverall but if you know the reason for the nausea and vomiting, you're better to target the one receptor hard than to sort of have a, a more general, gentler effect on all of the receptors. Um, so if it's a combination of causes, or if you've tried one of the others and it's been unsuccessful, it's quite a good second line choice. There are other antiemetics that we see prescribed, so Bucastem's quite widely prescribed. That's also an antihistamine, antimuscarinic. It's not as potent in, in its action on the receptor as cyclozine, so we tend to just go for cyclozine. And the other one we see prescribed is Ondansetron. It works um, on 5-HT3 receptors, um, which are predominantly in the bowel. So it can be effective for... GI causes of nausea and vomiting but I think its use is probably best left to specialists because it's also constipating so it can cause GI problems as well. That was a really nice way of framing it um, Anna. The, so that was quite interesting when you talked about uh, there being a combination of reasons why they have the nausea and vomiting. Would there ever be um, a, a cause for combining antiemetics? Um, you can combine antiemetics. Again, I'd probably say you'd probably want to speak to your specialist palliative care services if you're thinking about that, because there are combinations that you want to avoid. Um, so a combination that we quite often see is metoclopramide with cyclozine, and it's not a great combination. So part of the effect of metoclopramide is it's prokinetic benefits so helping things move through the bowel 
and cyclazine essentially counteracts those effects. Um, so you've got one one antiemetic trying to push things through and another antiemetic stopping it from doing that. So you'll lose the effect of both of them. Some of the other antiemetics you can combine, but you really need to think through why you want to combine them and potentially what the side effects of combining them would be. So I'd probably suggest if you, you're in a position where you think that's going to help, talk to your local palliative care services. Brilliant. That makes sense. Nausea and vomiting can be quite difficult to manage at times for, for us as GPs if we don't get it right first time. because We like to do that, don't we? And I think that's the same would say for any symptom. If we try something and our patients report back that it doesn't work, we should go back to the principles of why that's not working and maybe try an alternative. But if we are getting stuck, I think, as Anna said, absolutely getting that specialist advice because that can be perhaps the difference between that patient being managed successfully at home and potentially going to hospital because their symptoms aren't controlled. Yeah. Which for the vast majority of patients who do want to avoid that, there's something that we could, with appropriate advice, manage in the community. Yeah, absolutely. So we see patients who, when we take a history, we think have GI causes for their nausea and vomiting. And we've just kept putting tablets into a stomach that doesn't work, essentially. And we will often look at using things by a subcutaneous route, knowing that if we can get the stomach to function more effectively, we'll be able to go back to the oral route once the symptoms are controlled. So we sometimes end up you know, using a, a syringe pump, um, maybe for three or four days to give the stomach a break and then are able to get them onto oral medications. The other thing I would say about oral medications and particularly metoclopramide if you're using it for gastric causes of nausea and vomiting is that the liquid is far quicker absorbed than tablets are. So I don't often recommend liquids um, but that's one circumstance in which I would say if someone is having problems with nausea and vomiting, metoclopramide liquid will work far better than metoclopramide tablets will. Do we know how that is with cost? It's why I don't like recommending liquid medications. Um, but I think if every, if you understand why that's going to be more cost effective than moving through a whole different regime of antiemetics that people then don't take, it's it's worth the difference in cost. But if we're not explaining why we need the liquid, I can understand the, the reluctance to prescribe it. And if metoclopramide is working nicely for somebody, I know there's the cautions about how long to use it for. Are you? What do you do in terms of that? Do you ever have to alter with that, that consideration or...? I think because we're focusing very much on prescribing in the palliative setting, you have to weigh up the risks and benefits. So for the majority of patients I see, if it controls their symptoms, we we don't follow the strict guidance that's within the BNF. So um, it's not unusual in palliative care to prescribe sort of outside of licence. And it's acknowledged that for palliative patients... It's, it's acceptable to continue metoclopramide for a longer period than is recommended in the BNF. Okay. And then if we move further down the GI tract, can you talk us through your approach to a patient reporting constipation in the context of palliative care? 
Constipation is not unusual in palliative care. It's a symptom in palliative care. And a lot of the research that's been done around laxatives hasn't been in the palliative care population. And again, some of the, the doses and the combinations that we recommend potentially will not fit with prescribing for people who have non, non-palliative diagnoses. So again, we're looking at why someone's constipated and more often than not, it's multifactorial. I would say medications is a major cause of constipation for our patients. So um, opioids, adjuvant analgesics, some of the antidepressants, lots of, of different combinations of things can cause constipation. Patients tend to have reduced mobility and that will impact when we see them in the hospital setting, the fact that they're not in their normal environment can change their toileting habits. Um, having to use a commode or a bedpan changes your position from the position you would normally be in. That can impact. So positioning can be really important. Having a footstool in the bathroom can be a really simple way of more effectively using gravity to, to help you out. We see patients who develop constipation because of hypercalcemia, so you have to consider other causes that might be there. And quite frequently, um, people will have reduced oral intake, both diet and fluids. And people who have opened their bowels daily for the majority of their adult life can become really distressed at opening them alternate days. So talking through what is an acceptable bowel pattern can be really important. For a lot of patients, you're not going to achieve what they think is normal. So understanding what is normal from their perspective can be key to managing their expectations. And conversation's the um, the key first step in managing things. So you can give dietary advice, um, but for our patients, it doesn't work as well as it does for people with other reasons for constipation because their oral intake just isn't as good. You want to establish with them what would be an acceptable bowel habit for them. You know, going three days without opening your bowels is not going to harm somebody in general, but for someone who's always gone every day, it can be quite an adjustment for them to make. And you want to try and find for them a regime which is using oral medications to keep things regular. And there's no single approach to managing constipation that's going to work for everybody. We see people on many different laxatives um, and some will find one particular thing really, really helpful and others will not understand how anyone could possibly think that could work. So I think an easy approach is to think about how the bowel functions And what you've got to do is get your motion through the bowel to where it needs to be and be comfortable enough to get out. So you want it in the right place and you want it not to be too hard that it's painful to pass. And that often will require um, a combination of medications. So a stimulant to move things through and a softener to make it comfortable to actually pass once it's in the right place. Certainly with opioid-induced constipation, the recommendations are always to prescribe a stimulant and then you may need to add in a a softener if the stimulant alone 
doesn't seem to have been effective. And that's because opioids um, slow your bowel transit time, but also um, have an impact on the amount of uh, liquid that's reabsorbed from your motions back into the circulation. So there's no particular prescriptive way that you have to approach the prescribing of the medications, but the, the stimulant that's probably used most frequently is Senna. People will have tried it themselves because you can buy it over the counter and it can be pretty effective in, in managing as a stimulant. Um, but you might need to use doses that aren't the over-the-counter doses. So one Senna tablet has 7.5 milligrams of Senna in it. And most people will take one or two at night. But you can take up to four twice a day for severe constipation, which again probably is outside of the guidance in the BNF, but is very much within practice in palliative care. The problem with stimulants for some people is that they can cause colicky type pains if you're using too much stimulant and the stool isn't soft enough. So you have to be wary of that and that's why the combination with a a softener can be much more effective. And the softener we tend to use is sodium docusate. If there's only one thing that you think of when you think of sodium docusate my suggestion would be never prescribe the liquid, always prescribe the capsules. The liquid is absolutely foul tasting. Ah, okay. Yeah, I think we had a palliative care training day where they got us to try different laxatives and there was one that was disgusting and I couldn't remember which one it was, but uh, yeah, I think it's that one. (laughs) It will 100% have been um, docusate sodium. The capsules um, are generally quite easy to swallow because they're sort of gelatin capsules rather than the harder capsules. So people do seem to manage that quite well. And when you're thinking about doses with laxatives, I'm fairly flexible in how I describe it to patients. So giving them an understanding of what the medications does is really important as well as allowing them to make small dose adjustments, which mean they can maintain opening their bowels. So Senna's a tablet, Docusate's a capsule, so it's easy for them to to differentiate between the two. And I tend to say, if things are hard, take an extra capsule. And if things are not where you want them to be, take an extra tablet so that they get some sort of control themselves and I give them a maximum and I give them a minimum because you need to take something every day to keep things working but allowing that little bit of flexibility again it's about the describing to them why you're using what you're using yeah something we sometimes see in primary care is patients sort of saying well they've got diarrhea and then we will when we take a bit more history, actually, that turns out to be overflow with quite severe constipation. And then quite reasonably, some families or, or patients will then be self-medicated with something to slow the bowel down. So they sometimes we do home visits and there's boxes of Imodium there. And actually, if we get to the root cause of that, we, we may treat the, the constipation and, and the, therefore the associated diarrhea with it because I think perhaps we we can all understand that concept but I think it's it's not something that some people consider um, and I think the other thing just to say around constipation Anna's described wonderfully how important it is 
to, to manage it before it becomes a problem. I think on one of our previous episodes, we talked about agitation. And actually, um, it's pretty well recognised that severe constipation can cause agitation in our palliative patients. And that also can lead on to other problems such as urinary retention. And actually, if we address the reason the agitation, so if we get people more comfortable with the bowels or stop them being constipated and stop the retention, actually we, we solve that problem and it's we don't have to manage the agitation in other ways. So it is always worth considering that what other effects it, it can have as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing to also think about is if someone's needed sort of a rectal intervention to help with their constipation. Um, so that might be suppositories or an enema. If that's the case, they need their oral laxatives increasing because their oral laxatives haven't been adequate to keep the bowel regular enough that they've not needed the rectal measures. The only time really that rectal measures, I would say, should be used routinely is if there's a neurological reason why the bowel's not functioning because laxatives orally are probably not going to work very effectively. And for our patient group, that tends to be patients with spinal cord compression due to bone metastases. So we always have to think with that patient group, how are we going to ensure that they're able to open their bowels? That makes sense. The other um, area in relation that relates both to nausea and vomiting and constipation is patients who have bowel obstruction, which doesn't happen frequently. Um, I think about 3% of patients with cancer and metastatic disease develop obstructive symptoms. And for some of the palliative patients, surgical intervention is not going to be an option. So we manage things conservatively and we would try to, to do that at home for somebody in the community. But that group of patients are inevitably going to need a syringe driver um, because they're not going to absorb medications. And in terms of trying to get the bowel to function. When it comes to laxatives, we want to avoid stimulants because if they have a complete obstruction, using a stimulant laxative is going to cause quite bad colic. So we would use a softener on its own for that group of patients. So you can use the docusate sodium capsules, even though the bowel doesn't feel like it's functioning very well. Um, sometimes it just helps to ease things through if it's a subacute obstruction. With the um, with nausea and vomiting in those patients, I'm assuming metoclopramide isn't an ideal choice either. Um, it's not. It can be quite complicated. So if somebody is at home with symptoms of bowel obstruction, they're patients that I would really expect palliative care services to know about, so that they'd be supporting you in managing them. If somebody has symptoms that suggest bowel obstruction, um, we do sometimes try metoclopramide because it can get the bowel to begin to function a little better if it's a subacute picture. But if it's a complete obstruction, it, it probably will cause colic because it's a prokinetic. Um, and in that case, we'd, we'd use cyclozine because it has that opposing effect that we talked about before. But I would, for any of those patients, ask your local palliative care services to give advice, really. 
grand. And then just kind of ending, we mentioned last time about the guidelines in Greater Manchester having changed in the recent past. What would be the main points to take away uh, with regards to GI symptoms? The recommendations aren't really um, that different, but there is very specific guidance around um, bowel obstruction that's really helpful in understanding how we can manage that conservatively. And the information around constipation is really helpful. I've talked about sort of the initial approach to constipation, but it's got different options for if those measures haven't worked. Yes. I think that the guidelines are really very helpful because I think they're, they're very uh, relevant to patients within the last sort of 12 months of life, not just necessarily the last days of life, because I think some of these can be quite long-standing problems that we'd have to manage as the patient deteriorates rather than something that's a, a short-lived uh, issue. So it, it, they can be very useful to, to help us in primary care, sort of guide us through that. Yeah. Lovely. I think that's um, that's plenty, isn't it? I think we've answered all of our burning questions about um, GI symptoms in palliative <laughs> care. But it was great. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time because I, I think that's made it so much clearer than any teaching that I've had before. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I know you were really excited about this episode, Sarah, uh, while we were planning it. Uh, did it live up to expectations? Oh, absolutely. Anna was amazing when we were talking through kind of what to cover in this episode uh, and what would be too much information. I was like quite keen on covering um, some, some of the receptors and things for nausea, just because I find sometimes that sticks in my head a bit better. So yep. I absolutely loved her breakdown of just like the four main causes of nausea uh, and vomiting and then just thinking about it in that way and then which uh, antiemetics work for which type. So yeah, I found that definitely. so useful. So I loved that. Yeah. What about you? I I think it was just the same as the pain one. It was taking that um, kind of step back and thinking, why are they having nausea and vomiting? Why are they constipated? Because I think sometimes you can just fall into the habit of treating the constipation or assuming that it's because they're on the opiate. Um, and like you don't really think about it sometimes. Um, where it was nice to hammer home the point of no really think about why is this happening because then you're going to pick the most appropriate management plan for the patient that's probably going to help fix the problem sooner and then they're going to be more comfortable faster absolutely yeah the the whole thing of kind of the the history taking of sickness and vomiting yeah uh, to actually get to the diagnosis yeah it was really good and I really liked um like her points about um if they're not sort of getting things in that there's no point in using certain medications because they're not going to have any absorption yeah Uh, so so just thinking about the ways in which or why things aren't working as well I thought that was really useful yeah um I'm seeing what else I've written down here the the way that she talked about improving constipation I quite liked so um it needs to be soft and it needs to be in the right place um, I thought that was really good because uh, then that yeah. really helps you to think about what way you need to treat it. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of, um, again, kind of optimizing the simple things. So um, I've never used Senna as four um, no. twice a day. Yeah, so that would be interesting in terms of that palliative. Like they say, a lot of the palliative medicine usage can be a bit off license, but, you know, it, it's, it's definitely worth considering. And then um, going over sodium docusate and sort of remembering about the different types of laxatives, I thought was really useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And the the last thing I had was just um, bringing patients into the management of their own constipation. Um, so like she said, giving them a minimum, giving them a maximum and educating them so that then they're not taking medications blind. They actually know what they're for and they can adjust the doses themselves. I thought that was quite nice. Yeah, that that's really nice because a lot of the time you take for granted when you're talking to patients that they know what medication you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, when you say, oh, the Senna, and normally like if you say a tablet, they'll say, is that the, you know, is that the red one? Is that the orange one? Or, so you forget. So that's brilliant that she's t- she has tailored that properly. So take the tablet Senna if you're not going very often and take the capsule if it's um, if it's too hard. So yeah. it's perfect. Yeah, really good. Yeah, lovely episode. So if you'd like to get in touch, um, you can. You can uh, tweet us at PCKB Podcasts. Yes. Yep. <laughs> or um, you can email us on um, primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. Yep, so also right. right. Is there an S on that one? It's primarycarepodcasts. Primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. Yep. And um, we've also got our survey, which we do love getting little emails in that say that someone's completed our survey. Um, so if you want to use that instead, uh, we'll put the link in the episode description. And thank you to everybody that's got in touch in any of the ways so far. We do love hearing from you all. Yeah. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. guys just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public they were recorded in greater manchester in 2020 guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions Uh, the content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice it's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.